us can grab our Bibles and turn to Habakkuk. Three chapters long, and here is a study on faith. Often when we think of faith, we think in terms of somebody just hanging on there and believing everything that's put before them without question, without concern. We look and we just say, hey, we're going to believe it and move on. But I found in my life and in the lives of most people that I know, that's not the way faith operates. We struggle at times with faith. We have questions. We have concerns. See, I think real faith, strong faith, is available to question. In fact, what I find is after those times of question are the times of real growth for me because I come to understand more about God by asking the hard questions and by seeking to know who God really is. It's all too easy for us to not think about our faith. And when we do that, I think we have a rocky faith, one that isn't going to grow. But when we have a faith that is strong enough to ask questions and wait for God to give answers, we have a growing faith. That's what we find here in the book of Habakkuk. A key thought that Habakkuk shares with us is the just shall live by faith. And he evidences how he lives by faith in a time where there are some tough questions and real concerns. So what do we find in Habakkuk? It's divided into three sections. A question, a response from God, another question, another response from God, and then in the third chapter, what we're going to find is a response from Habakkuk. Habakkuk was probably a worship leader, kind of like Dan. (laughs) He was responsible for bringing praise to the people of God. And that third chapter, as we're going to see, is going to be a response from worship leader Habakkuk to who God is. As his questions are asked, as God gives responses, all that Habakkuk can do is stand before God Almighty and praise. And that's what we're to do as human beings, that same thing. And the things that we can't understand, we try, that's faith. And the things that God reveals to us that we can, we give praise and we give thanks. And we count on the God who is. And let's look at the first chapter. In the first chapter, we're going to see confusion for the faithful. We're going to see that there's a burning question that Habakkuk asks that I'm sure all of us have asked as well. And that's, why does evil exist? If God is holy and God is powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in our world? We look around us and we see corruption. We see violence. We see injustice. It's all around us. And you know what we find as we look through Scripture? The more things change, the more they remain the same. Because the sin nature of man 
the sin that grips the heart of man and drives him to do evil has been among us ever since the fall of man. Look at Habakkuk's question as it begins in the second verse. He asks, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Or cry out to you, Violence! But you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. There's so much evil. It hurts my heart to turn on the news or to read the paper and to see all of the despicable, wicked things that are going on all around me. I cry out to God and I say, God, how long? Stop these things. But I get no answer. Silence. How can this be? That's where Habakkuk was. Why was he there? Habakkuk was a prophet to the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And so the southern kingdom was going on. Many of the people in the southern kingdom thought, well, you know, those northern people, they deserved it. They sinned, they were terrible. They got what was coming to them. We're God's special people because we live near Jerusalem where the temple is. God will never do anything to us or bring any harm to us. We're okay. That was their assessment of themselves, but here was the problem. Their assessment was inaccurate. You see, while they had the temple... They had high places where they would bow down to foreign gods. While they had the law, they observed only the parts that they enjoyed or liked and ignored the parts where God called them to obedience. Habakkuk was living in a time where there were terrible things going on among his own people. He was watching violence. He was watching corruption He saw the things that were the ugly side of his society, and it vexed him. It hurt his spirit. You know, when we seek to live holy lives, we become more sensitive to sin. It hurts us. It affects us on a real level. And this is where Habakkuk was, watching What was going on? In all of it, he thought God was being silent, either not listening or not caring about what went down. Habakkuk was experiencing doubt. But then we have God's response, starting in the fifth verse. And you know what we find? Comprehending God's plan 
is beyond our ability. Look at God's answer, starting in the fifth verse to Habakkuk's concern. And this is what God says. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour all that bent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert winds. They gather prisoners like sand. Do you get the picture? Here is Habakkuk in his question saying, Why are you allowing all of this sin in Judah? We're really bad. We're really doing terrible things. The people of my own people are doing awful things before you. How can you let this go on? Do you see what God answers? It's not going to be let go on. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to step in. I'm going to bring something you haven't anticipated. I'm raising up the Babylonians. They are going to come and discipline the wicked for what they've been doing. And you know, as I look at Habakkuk in this text, do you know what I see? So often, God is working in ways that we can't understand, that we don't know. We think he's being silent, but he's answering right along. We don't see it, and even if God told us, we wouldn't understand it, but God is there. And that's where our faith needs to rest. And the God that works in ways that we don't see. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. God doesn't need to check in with us before he does something. He doesn't need to explain himself. He doesn't have to say, well, I'm sorry you're disappointed. Let me fill you in. We have to rest in the fact that God is God. And his ways aren't our ways. But they're always wise, always best, always good. Now, do you think Habakkuk was encouraged by what God said? Habakkuk, we're going to send the Babylonians over to you, and just as they have been trouncing the rest of the world, they will now come and trounce Judah. Would that make you feel good? Not at all. And you know, that's something else that stands out to me. Sometimes the answers that God gives us aren't the answers we're hoping for. Sometimes the answer that God brings seems even worse than the question. How can that be? How how can you bring such a wicked people to do such terrible things? God, I'm... I'm not sure I like the answer that you're giving me as to what you plan to do. But then we come to the next complaint. 
Now, wait a minute, God. I ask why wicked thrives. You told me that you're going to send the Babylonians, who, by the way, are more wicked than the people of Judah. You're sending the Babylonians in to punish people that are less wicked than them. And so that's a complaint. More wicked people are going to punish less wicked people. And so the question that is behind what Habakkuk starts to discuss is this. Can evil people be used to punish those more righteous? How does that work? So let's look. Look at the 12th verse of that first chapter. O Lord, you are from everlasting. My God, my Holy One, we will not die. The Lord, you you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. So what Habakkuk is doing in these two verses is, I accept what you're saying about the Babylonians. But then the question comes, verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And then he goes into this illustration of a fishnet. It says, you have made men like fish in the sea, like creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them up with hooks and catches them in his net and gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. And then he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he believes or he lives in luxury And enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? In other words, what Habakkuk is saying is, look, these people have no more regard for people than a fisherman might have for his net. How can you, God, allow such a treacherous thing to take place? How can you allow people who are so wicked, they worship other idols, they worship their own power, And they're swallowing up the innocent. And as they come into Jerusalem, they won't look and say, you're righteous, you're not, I'll just deal with the unrighteous. The righteous will suffer right alongside the unrighteous. So here's Habakkuk asking the question, how can this be? Isn't that a tough question that we so often ask? Why do terrible people do terrible things and seem to get away with it without consequence. It's frustrating when you see people that you care about suffering because of the evil of someone else. But let's understand something. As Habakkuk is making the observations about how the Babylonians would come in and take people away into exile, into slavery. As he's making this observation, what we find is Scripture already addressed his question. You see, in the Old Testament, God had made a covenant with the children of Israel. 
And that covenant was this. Be obedient, follow my word, and I will protect you. If you turn to the idols of the nations around you and you become just like them and you decide to live as though there is no God, I will let you experience what it's like to live as though there's no God. For my protection will be removed. In fact, in Deuteronomy, we find these words, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your father's. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, and you will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. You see, in God raising up the Babylonians, God was being true to his word. He had warned all of Israel that this would take place, he had already given an object lesson to the southern kingdom by the northern kingdom being captured by the Assyrians, and yet here are the people of God still ignoring what God had said. So God is telling Habakkuk, I am true to my word. It will come to pass. Now that still raises a question. How can a holy, righteous God use wicked people to accomplish his purpose. Does God inspire them to evil? Well, Scripture gives us an authoritative answer on that. James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted. Now look at this when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. You know what James is giving us insight into? When people do evil things, it is not God inspiring them to do evil. God isn't a puppet master behind the scenes saying, go do this wicked thing, wink, wink. That's not who God is. When man does evil, it's all of man. But the great news is God is more powerful than evil. And even as man chooses to do evil, God can work it together for good. We have a verse that speaks to this, even in the book of Genesis. You remember the story, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery did a wicked thing in telling their father that he was dead. But then Joseph rises to prominence in Egypt, delivers all of his people from starvation, and he says this to his brothers who had perpetrated such evil things against them. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. That's our God. God can even take the evil of man and use it for his purposes and his good. Sometimes we see how it unfolds, sometimes we don't. But it's the same God who sees to all of these things working together for his purpose and his plan. We get confused. 
You ever been to a parade and there's a crowd around you? And you can catch a little glimpse of the parade as you peer through the heads that are on either side of you. The marching band that's going by right in front of you, you can see certain sections of the marching band. And if you were to judge the parade just by what you see in that little glimpse that you have, you would say, well, a parade is all about the trumpets. That's all a parade is, just people blowing on trumpets. You might even catch a glimpse as it moves on a little bit of the drum section. So you get excited and you think, oh, well, there's trumpets and drums. But you don't have a glimpse of the whole band, let alone the whole parade. You know what happens if you go up on the top of a tall building and you look at the parade? You can see the whole thing if the building's tall enough, beginning to end. You can see all of the pieces and parts and how it fits together and how it's coordinated and how everything is working out and everything's organized and working together. And that's the way it is between us and God. We just get a glimpse. We see just what's before us. And even that is obscured by other things. We're not like God. We can't see the whole thing. So when evil happens, when terrible things happen, this is where we have to trust God. And he sees the whole thing, and he directs the whole thing to accomplish his purpose and his plan. Now, the question that Habakkuk is asking is, God, how can the treacherous and the evil continue to get away with the evil that they perpetrate? And then we come to the second chapter. There are consequences. What the wicked sow, they will also reap. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. It says, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false, though it linger. Now look at this. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. We don't see as God sees. So therefore, we have to wait for what God is doing. Isn't that the hardest thing to do? Especially when we're looking and we're getting ready to have evil visited upon us. It's a hard thing to wait on God. But this is what God is instructing Habakkuk to do. He's saying, you wait on me. When we look, we see a description of the enemy as we pick it up in the fourth verse. It talks about the pride of the Babylonians, and it goes on to describe the terrible things that they will do to other people. But then when we come to the sixth verse... There are some woes that will be visited on the Babylonian people. Now, in case you're not up on your Old Testament language, woe is not a good thing. <laughs> woe means that God is getting ready to bring accountability for the terrible things that the wicked have done. And what he's saying 
to Habakkuk. And what he's saying to us is, nobody gets a free pass. The wicked must answer for the wicked that they've done. Well, God removes the protection and allows the wicked to come in and follow their evil desires to punish even the righteous, they are absolutely accountable for the evil that they do. And God will hold them accountable. So look at what he says in the sixth verse. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. You know what God is saying? Woe to you because what goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. A lot of times we think in terms of that just being a cliché. Something that people say, but listen, it is borne out in Scripture. What people reap, they definitely, or what people sow. I got that backwards, didn't I? What people sow, they definitely reap. They will have it come back on them. And God sees to it. It's not just happenstance and chance. It is God's justice that will bring this to pass. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who builds his realm with unjust gain, to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. In other words, the wicked very often are people in power, and they send those under them to go and do terrible things to other people. And they're above it all. You don't see the kings and the noblemen getting down and dirty in the trenches fighting in the way that the infantrymen do. They're protected. They're in their lofty perch, protected. They send their lawyers to go do the dirty work. They bribe officials, staying above it all. That's how corruption works. But God is saying in this text, woe to you. And look at the 10th verse. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. It's going to come down. You will experience full consequence for what you've done. Look at another woe in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. And then God goes on to talk about how the Babylonians would experience the result of their own evil that they perpetrated against others. What they have sown, they will also reap. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. The manipulator who comes in and perpetrates evil against other people, putting them in positions where they can be taken advantage of. God sees that. And he will discipline them. And then look at verses 19 and 20. 
Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it, but the holy Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Final woe is this. You will pursue your idols and not know the one true God. And you know what? That's the worst woe of all. That stone, that wood that's covered with even gold is lifeless. Pray to it and you find nothing. Seek Life, when this life ends from that piece of gold and wood or gold and stone, and what do you find? Sore disappointment and shame that you've invested in something so lifeless that has no life of its own and therefore can give you no life. God is the one who is in his holy temple. He is the one who sets the affairs of the earth. So the evil ones, the wicked, they will invest in philosophies and thought processes and all sorts of things, and what they will find is all of it falls short of the living God, and that's the worst consequence of all, dying without God. The temporary things of having their cities taken back, having all that they've accumulated, taken away, that's temporal. Not experiencing the living God, that's eternal. The greatest woe of all. That was God's answer to Habakkuk. Third and final point. Comfort can be found in the worst of times when we trust in God. Listen. When God gave explanation to Habakkuk that, hey, those who are coming to punish you and your people, they're going to get it in the end. I still don't think Habakkuk was rejoicing until he got his perspective in the right place as to who God is and what God does. And really, that's what we find in this third chapter. Now, this is written poetically. It was a song. And it expresses deep truth in a poetic fashion. So we want to see some of the points. And basically, there are three points that we want to look at. And the first point is this. We need to consider God's mighty deeds for his people. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, you know what he's saying there, God? I know that we have it coming. That we are fully deserving of your wrath I've seen the power of your hand, the things that you do. But God, balance your wrath with us with mercy. 
Let us experience both. That's his prayer. Then he goes on to talk about the wonderful things that God had done to deliver his people throughout history past. He talks about a region in verse 3 where God delivered the children of Israel as they moved from Egypt during the Exodus to the Promised Land and how God provided protection for them. He talks about the power of God in creation and the power of God to crush the enemies of Israel when he talks about the Midianites falling to the hand of God. God had delivered the people of Israel in the past, so what Habakkuk is counting on is, God, you will deliver them in the future. We can trust you. Here's another point. Count on God's promise to preserve his people. God had promised the children of Israel that they would be his people, that they would survive. As a matter of fact, when we look at this text and we pick it up in the 8th verse of chapter 3, after talking about the raging rivers and all that God has done in creation, how the sun and the moon and the stars are all in God's powerful hand, how God takes his enemies and vanquishes them, look at the 13th verse. Here's his hope. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. Why did God protect the children of Israel, even when they had done so much wickedness, so much evil, because they are his people. But one was coming through the children of Israel who would be the deliverer for us all. In this one glimpse in the 13th chapter where it says, to save your anointed one, he saved the people of Israel so that the Messiah could come and save us all. That's why God's plan to protect and preserve his people is so crucial, so much a theme of the Old Testament. God's plan for our salvation is strong. Final thought. We need to courageously trust the God of our salvation. I encourage you to read all of this third chapter when you get home. But in verses 16 through 19, we find a response from Habakkuk that's certainly understandable. In verse 16, he said, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Listen, the news that God gave Habakkuk is not news that any of us want to hear. You're going to suffer. Oh, I didn't want to hear that. I don't want to go through that. Our knees buckle. Our hearts sink. We feel it to our very bones as we look at bad times and we struggle through. But there's one who is bringing his purpose and his plan together, and we need to wait patiently for him.
Look at verse 17. In talking about the hard times, Habakkuk said, Look, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, my Savior. I love this verse. My joy and rejoicing are not contingent on the circumstances around me. As we go through hard times, our focus on God is the key to surviving them. Habakkuk could have looked at how the land was not producing and become discouraged and frightened. But in the midst of his trial and his struggle, there is the God who is my Savior. And that's a glimpse of what is true for us today. You see, God, my Savior, lives right in our hearts when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. In the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggle, there is God, your Savior. You can count on him. You can hope on him. Look at verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Hunters, you see deers running through, uh, deers, <laughs> deer running through thicket, right? You can see them hop through thickets and jump over creeks, and they are sure-footed critters, right? When he's saying here, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer, he's saying there's stability, there's strength. I'm going to be able to navigate this thicket because God sees that my feet will stay planted. He enables me to go on heights. This is the God that we place our faith in. Faith suffers and struggles when we look horizontally. When we look at the terrible things around us, it's easy to become discouraged, frightened, frustrated. But when we look up, <clears throat> when we see the God who is, who gives strength, who is our Savior, who makes our feet like the feet of a deer, who is our strength, we can navigate those difficult times. Our problem is sometimes we look to the gold-covered wood and stone, the created rather than the creator. If you want to navigate the storms of life, whether you're going through tough times now or tough times are ahead, you must know God. The anointed one that God protected and preserved came, lived among us after being born in a manger, died on a cross for our sin, rose again and is seated at the right hand of God, Amen. Jesus Christ. He is our strength. He is our help. He is our hope. As we focus on him, we will find the strength to make it through the most difficult of times. 
May God give us that strength. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text, for the reminder that it is to us all that you are God. That even when we discover news that we don't want, that we find perplexing and frightful, even in that you are there, God, working a purpose and a plan. May we trust in your strength. May we rely on your deliverance. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.